Our Old Testament reading is from Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean yet lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from John, chapter 14. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going, Thomas said to him. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do not know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. During this time of Epiphany, we are thinking about and observing and paying attention to how we see God. And that's quite a big subject, right? How do you see God? And what is that all about? And it makes me think of, like, when is the last time you stood somewhere in an awe-inspiring place? For me, it's places like Bryce Canyon or the Grand Tetons, like, give me a good set of mountains, Right? Other people are, give me a good painting. Others are like, let me sit and be surrounded by multi-layers of music and let it engulf me. But there is something about how there are moments when we are sitting in and, and well, we're looking at and we're sitting and engulfed in this sense of awe. And how do you communicate it, right? I mean, anymore these days, especially if you're at a place like the Grand Tetons or Bryce Canyon, our instinct is to pull out our cameras or our phones and try to take a picture. And anytime you do, you realize it's not enough because we can't capture that sense of awe. This is when I think of um, how desperately we need the artists who are among us. 
We need the language of artists because artists have trained themselves to see, to hear, and to craft a language in such a way that can cloak this sense of awe in a way that our normal everyday speech just can't do it. Today we have two passages and they're related but they're very different. And I like to think of them as two artistic portrayals trying to teach us and show us and capture emotion and sight of what it means to actually see God. So we're going to start first with Isaiah. And I really love this vision of Isaiah. And if you were here during our Advent series, we did a lot from Isaiah. And so just to remind you the context of the person, Isaiah, he's a Jerusalem boy, he's an urban boy. And a lot that you get in his writings is this temple and palace focus. In fact, there's a lot of language about Mount Zion because Zion is where the temple is. And it's not the tallest of the mountains in the Jerusalem area. I mean, it's distinct, but there are mountains surrounding it that are much higher, except the language that is always used of Mount Zion is elaborate and huge and magnificent because it is the place where God dwells. And so a lot of what Isaiah does in his book is to point us towards Mount Zion because it points us to God. And then he asks the question, what does it mean to see God and to recognize him as the true king who sits enthroned over his entire kingdom? Now, this is an interesting question, especially here in chapter 6, because we're at a very precarious time where if you're using human sight and human understanding and you're, you're trying to do your own evaluation of your context, you would say, this is the time to strategize. This is the time to make alliances. There's a big empire that's coming. You're under threat. And so hoard food, strategically place armies, make friendships with strategic people. And Isaiah is going to try to refocus people and say, it's not your perception of the world that you're reacting to. It's perceiving who God is and orienting yourself to the truth of who God is. And so we get this grand vision. And I love it. So in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. This is both throne and temple language. And so we see Isaiah is painting a picture for us of the divine king. And it is a grand image because God is seated. And yet this robe that he has is filling the temple where Isaiah is, this Jerusalem temple. It's actually a vision, you could almost say, of taking this horizontal temple that sits in Jerusalem and turning it vertical so that the Holy of Holies is in the heaven where God is seated. And yet he, his presence and his robe is filling the earthly temple down in Jerusalem. 
I mean, it is a grand and spectacular vision that is hard to capture in black and white on the page. And so we go on. The seraphs, or the seraphim, were in attendance above him. Now, this is a good time to go, what on earth are seraphs? And I think this actually plays into how we understand this vision. Because seraphim and cherubim are actually known ancient Near Eastern images. We have them depicted all over the place. And so we should ask ourselves, what are those? Because in modern, especially after the Renaissance, we get lots of like little babies and cute little human images with super precious wings. That image is nothing like what the biblical images are. If we look at monuments and if we look at even images that were in like wove or etched into ivory in Israel itself, we see cherubim especially are these composite animals that are fierce, often almost like a bull, but with gigantic wings and sometimes the head of a human. So composite animal, they and the seraphim, seraphim have more of a snake-like figure to them, but also sometimes with the face of a human, or in this case, we get feet of humans. The seraphim are an Egyptian image that is always reminiscent of these fierce snakes that are deep in the dark wilderness area. But the Egyptians used seraphim and then all the surrounding nations used cherubim to put right next to the throne of the king. They are majestic and they are fierce and they are there to protect that which is the most sacred. And so you can't have cute images in your mind when you're reading this vision of Isaiah. It has to be fierce it's something that brings you to a tremble. And yet we see of the seraphim, and we don't know how many are here, just some, whatever that number is. And yet we see even these fierce, majestic creatures covering their faces and covering their feet before the magnificent majesty of God. So you take something super fierce and even they are humbling themselves before the divine. And this portion of the text, this is when I want the most amazing loud speaker system that we could get in this building and then bring back the frankincense of last week where we smoked up the entire room because that kind of physical experience of being completely overwhelmed with sound and smell is what Isaiah is trying to capture in this image. Because now these majestic creatures are crying out, holy, 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 in verse 3. It's a three repetition of the word holy, which means it's the superlative of all holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And glory in Hebrew is kavod. And kavod has with it a sense of heaviness. It's all of the weightiness of glory. And it belongs to God who sits on the throne. 
You see, we need the language of the artists because we just read it and it's kind of flat, but we need to imagine this big, overwhelming sense of sacredness because that's what Isaiah points to. And Isaiah's response is, woe is me, right? It's this fear and trembling of who am I to stand before something that is so majestic as what I just see. So if we were to look at Isaiah's vision, what does Isaiah say about seeing God? And Isaiah says it's a bit like a theophany. It's the fabric of nature that gets pulled apart at its seams and it trembles because the sacred God shows up in human space and allows for this human to stand before him, which is amazing. Now, this kind of vision always makes me go, what would it take for me to have Isaiah's reaction? Reading it doesn't do it, right? This is when I need a whole entire physical experience to tremble this deeply and to fully come to the understanding of the divinity of who God is and how sacred and how special it is to be able to stand before him. This vision of seeing God may land flat with some of you, right? We don't, we don't do royalty. We don't do thrones. We certainly don't do seraphim, right? We don't have that language. And so that might be hard language for us. And so maybe let's look at another vision, another portrait. This one coming from the book of John. And as we've been doing, not only through Advent, but Christmas time, is when we get to the gospel portion, we have to ask ourselves, which gospel are we reading? And what is the flavor of this particular gospel writer? And I love John, especially John in Epiphany, because John is just, he's an artist among artists. And so it's amazing because John says and talks about Jesus as the light who comes into the world. And this light is a light that darkness cannot quell or extinguish. And so John is going to paint a portrait of who Jesus is as this light and who Jesus is as a human form of God. And that doesn't mean that it's any less majestic or or awe-inspiring as the Isaiah passage. It just is portrayed in a slightly different way. Before we get to chapter 14, I want to read a little bit of how John starts his gospel because it sets the mood and it tells us what we're looking for as we read through the rest of the gospel. And these verses are probably familiar to you. But in the beginning was the word, and just with those words, John tells us he's telling a new creation story. And he goes on, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So it's a cosmic story that we're telling. And all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into, the, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. This is John's nativity story. Not so much a little baby in Bethlehem, but this cosmic 
from the very beginning, this divine person is going to come now, limit himself, and dwell in the midst of us. And as John continues to paint this portrait through his gospel, he's very specific about how he does it. And he pulls seven big conversations and seven very distinct signs. And that's his way of framing who is this Jesus who came into the world. So we're, in the, we're at the tail end of this story, this portrait that is being painted for us by John when we get to John chapter 14. And by this time, we are right after the Last Supper. So Jesus has just revealed a portion of what he's going to be doing in this last shared meal with the disciples. And then he goes on to say, I'm getting ready to leave. And these disciples who have been following him for years, discipleship is not just a gather every once in a while to study from you kind of discipleship. Disciples and rabbis, I mean the disciple, you put your nose between the shoulder blade of your rabbi, you stand when your rabbi stands, you sit when he sits, you eat when he eats, you watch desperately to see how your rabbi is interacting with people around you. And so these disciples have been watching Jesus, looking at Jesus. And John is pointing us towards this and saying, who is Jesus? What does he look like? It's not the physicality of him that matters. It's the way that he interacts with politics, the way he interacts with the poor, the way that he interprets scripture, the way he interacts with foreigners. That's who Jesus is. That's the portrait that we're getting. And at this point, when Jesus says, and now I'm going away, the disciples ask a very logical question. Well, how on earth are we supposed to follow you? We've been following you physically. Like, you've made the decision which way to turn, which road to take, which person to interact. How are we supposed to do that? And Jesus goes, actually, you know what? This whole time, you've been watching me. You should know me, right? So in verse seven, it says, if you know me, you know my father also. This is not the knowing about, like the head knowledge. I know about. It is one who has lived, eaten, breathed, interacted, know intimately, the deepest of friendships. If you know me, then I've introduced you and you know in the same way the Father. Still somewhat confusing, and they ask for additional clarity, and then Jesus ends up later on saying, however, or whoever has seen me has seen the Father, right? And that is, again, not a physical human perception of eyes. It's a you've watched me interact. You've watched how I've interacted with all these other people. So if you're asking, what does God, you know, this invisible substance, this divine, like, what does God think about the poor? Jesus goes, well, you, you look at me. What does God think about foreigners? Jesus says, you, you look at me. What does God think about the sacredness of scripture? You look at me. Right? And Jesus is constantly going, you actually have seen God. You've just seen him in me. 
So when we look at this John text and we say, so what is John saying about seeing God? And John says, well, you've seen God through Jesus. And this can be a challenge to us, I think, or at least to me. I'll just take ownership of me. Because sometimes, especially when it comes to divinity, right, I kind of want to logically progress my way to the point of saying it's logical and it's smart and it makes sense for me to believe in the divine, right? But I am also someone who uh, the way that I think and act comes out of this Greco-Roman philosophical world. And it has passed through a lot of Western changes in society. So the scientific revolution, industrialization, right? All these different ways of thinking. I want data points. I want an outline, right? I want like, if this, then this, right? I want that kind of systematic reasoning that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is real and that I understand who he is and what I'm looking at. And John would challenge that and say, what if you look at the Bible and not make sense of the world according to your perspective, but take on who God is and then through God make sense of the world? Right, so when God shows up, he shows up as a human and he shows up relationally not as a data point, but as a relationship that plays out and interacts with the world. It is a bit of a challenge to us to reorient ourselves towards what does the Bible say about who Jesus is? Because if we can see Jesus in reality, we see God in the world. And later on, the verses that are not in the bulletin talk about Jesus saying, I am love, and I am the way I am because I love God. And you who love me should be the way that I am because of love. And John wraps up this portrait of Jesus, and he ties it all together and says, it's love. Who is God when we see him in the world? He's love. Who is Jesus when we see him in the world? He's love. Who are God's people in the world? How do we see them? Through love. And so when we see God in this epiphany season, we're seeing God in these grand visions. We're seeing God in this person. And we're being challenged to respond in this deep and God and Jesus mimicking kind of love. Will you pray with me? Holy God, holy, 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 are you the one, the God of the universe? The one that we don't quite understand because we don't have normal language that is thick enough and robust enough to describe the awe that we feel when we stand before you. And yet, as we try, as we try to turn and orient ourselves to you and not explain the world according to our own experiences and our own doubts and our own relationships, but can we orient ourselves to you and then have you change our lenses through which we see the world? May we 
come to you and focus on you and orient ourselves to you and then walk away change and recognizing that it is a distinct awe and pleasure, fearsome and wonderful to stand before you and to help and contribute to the kingdom that you are building here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.